If you have a copy of God's Word handy, you can be turning to Luke chapter 1 again for a different purpose than we were going over this morning uh, as we're going to talk about the book of Luke this afternoon, uh, but we appreciate you being here. I feel like I need to say, because I think everybody's mad at me, I was not the one who put the sign out there about prayer and fasting next Sunday for lunch, okay? That was not me. So I feel like everybody's like, did you do that? And we're not listening to you if that's what your idea is for lunch. But uh, there's somebody else who suggested prayer and fasting next Sunday, although I think now there's a sign-up sheet for Mexican theme which makes us a little happier to think about. But uh, we appreciate you uh, being here and the time we can spend together in fellowship, uh, both in our services today and in the worship together, but also in the fun and the laughter that we can have. We appreciate Charles leading us and the songs as he selected, as we said this morning. Uh, we're always trying to strike the right balance of things. Um, there are certainly biblical songs that we want to sing as we think about the birth of Jesus and how encouraging that is in the sense that he had to come in order to live his life and, and to die, um, but also, as we mentioned, not having that uh, mandate, if you will, or that command to celebrate it in a, a religious holy day kind of way. I appreciate Trey and, and his prayer. Uh, you know, uh, recently, several of you asked about an update on, on David Farr, and he's been improving. He went to service uh, there in Orlando this morning, been walking, getting around some, and just slowly trying to get some of that uh, function back after his brain surgery. Um, but one of the elders told him and said, uh, you know, you're supposed to be up here every Sunday preaching, but you've already preached a lot just by being here today, you know, being back and the things that he said. And I couldn't help but think about that with Trey and his prayer, of course, even for himself. We're thankful uh, that he his um, episode turned out like it did in a way that he's on the road to recovery and thankful for that and want to continue to pray for him. And, and uh, we often have a long list of folks who want to pray for, and I think this congregation does a good job of trying to say thank you as well when we give thanks for, for the good news that we receive. We have been working through the New Testament for a few months now and beginning as we made the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this afternoon we're going to talk about the book of Luke or the gospel according to Luke. We've made mention of that several times. Don't want to just belabor that each month as we get through this lesson and the lesson on John. Uh, but of course Luke is the author. Uh, that is a unanimous tradition Though if you have a bulletin in front of you and you're following along with our outline, you'll see that Luke is the author, but he is not named. We, I think we forget that sometimes, and it's not necessarily on purpose or a bad thing, but sometimes uh, people have just general misconceptions, right? I, I think if we stopped a lot of people down the road and you talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everyone would probably assume that's four of the disciples, right? That's four of the 12 apostles. They're, you know, some of the biggest books. They cover the life of Jesus. We're going to talk more about Luke in just a moment, but that's not always the case. But Luke is uh, nowhere actually named in the book, but the tradition um, of among church history and early church writers is uh, unanimous that he was the author. Of course, he was also the author of Acts. And when you look through the book of Acts, there's a great study there that I don't know if you've done in a while. I didn't come prepared to share all of it, but there are a lot of sections where the we phrase is used when Luke is traveling with Paul and he uses this idea of we. There's other cases when you read the book of Acts that you see the word they and as you read through it if you're trying to pick those out you notice sections where Luke was traveling with the party and recording some of these things and other sections where he's speaking about them and what they were doing. So the we sections of the book of Acts help us identify Luke as the author of both Acts and the gospel according to Luke here. Um, he, going back to church history for just a moment, um, he the, the tradition of Luke being the author is, uh, Luke is in some of the earliest list of New Testament books. I don't want to bog down too much in this stuff, 
but there's something called the Muratorian Canon, and it's from around 170, believe. It's a fragment. It's a piece of paper, so to speak, uh, of 85 lines in Latin, and it's believed to be perhaps the oldest list of books of the New Testament, and Luke is included in that. And so even this Muratorian canon or this Muratorian fragment agrees uh, that Luke you know, is part of the canon of the New Testament and that he is the author. If you have your Bible handy, just to turn to a couple of passages outside of the book, Colossians chapter 4, first of all. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, I had, I guess, a moment of deja vu, I don't know if that's what you call it. I was studying this week for this lesson, and I was thinking about Luke, and I was thinking about, I, I feel like I've preached this. I had to go back and check multiple times that I've not done the book of Luke yet, and what I realized is we just recently did Mark. And there's some overlap that both Mark and Luke are mentioned in other passages. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14 is one of those where it says, Luke the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, if you turned over there, notice in verse 10 of Colossians 4, that's where we got Mark or Marcus. You may see Marcus or you might even see Lucas in your translation. But that's why I was like, I know that I've talked about this recently and I was just getting confused that we had recently done Mark and now we're doing Luke. But here's where we see that Luke is the beloved physician where we find out just a little bit but we kind of crack the door open a little more and think a little deeper about him being a physician, but where he is called that. Uh, go forward a few pages towards the back of your Bible and find Philemon. Philemon, of course, is one chapter, Philemon and verse number 24. And really, in beginning of verse 23, as Paul is closing out this very powerful but very short epistle, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, and again, here's a mention of Mark, and then Luke, my fellow laborers. There's several names that are mentioned here. And then one more in that same section is 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. 2 Timothy 4, 11, where he mentions, only Luke is with me. And here is the mention of get Mark and bring him with you. So I think I realized, it took me a few minutes in study, but I realized why I was kind of getting that confused because they are mentioned close together here in all of these instances. Um, but we believe that 2 Timothy here, chapter 4, may have been near the end of Paul's life. And so the beloved physician Luke is with him as he's writing these epistles, uh, not the prison epistles. There are some that are when Paul wrote when he was in prison, but this would have been the ones near the end. And so uh, Luke was with him during this time. So just a little bit of history, just a couple other places that he's mentioned uh, here in the New Testament. The next thing we would notice here together uh, about the author being Luke is that Luke gives great testimony to the genuineness of Jesus's miracles. He gives great testimony to the genuineness of Jesus' miracles. He is a scientist, we might say, himself. Of course, the beloved physician, but also, in a sense, he's connected with you know, the study of science and these things. And a scientist himself, Luke had thoroughly investigated. You know, He had done the work. He wasn't just someone who's writing on a whim or for the fun of it or as an entertainer. He is someone who is, you know, associated with flat, uh, facts, and he's wanting to get it right. And so he's doing the research, and he's going to then truly record for us. I don't think I included it on the next slide here, but he records for us 20 miracles, 2-0, 20 miracles. Six of those 20 are particular to Luke himself and his writing. 
Not only does he record the 20 miracles, but he treats them as historical reality. He treats them as some those things that really happen. It's not some painted picture, as we were mentioning a moment ago. It's not some idea along those lines. But these are facts, even if they are hard to understand, maybe, or hard to believe, because there are people who are, you know, dead who are rising again. There are people who are not able to walk who are now walking. And I don't want to kind of go into it all again because we touched on it this morning. But maybe nowhere else is this, you know, famously true. But when it comes to the virgin birth, right? I mean, today, what do we talk about with scientists, right? Somebody says, oh, I'm a scientist, or I work in the field of science. Somebody says, oh, well, you must not believe, right? Because all scientists don't believe in God, and they take all these, you know, um, they take all these exceptions with what God's word has said, and that's not true. I don't think that's a fair and accurate depiction. Are there many many scientists and doctors, maybe, who say that they're atheists, or they don't agree with the word of God? Possibly, But man, when we find some Christians who work in those fields and try their best to show how it all works together, it is encouraging. And to think about Luke, who could have very easily said, I am a doctor. You're not pulling one over on me. A virgin birth is not possible, right? He could have easily said that. But he says, through his representation here, uh, and he records for us a lot about it. But here is a doctor reporting a virgin birth. And so it speaks to the genuineness of Jesus' miracles. These are not things that we think happen or here's this uh, tall tale or fairy tale that I've heard about. No, he's recording that these things happened with Jesus. He was a Gentile and most likely, uh, likely the most educated of all the New Testament writers. Um, I, I didn't have time to pull all the references, but if you go through Luke, he uses uh, his writings abound in uh, medical terms. They also abound in nautical terms. That happens even as you go over to the book of Acts as well. In the book of Acts, as he's recording Paul's journeys and Paul's shipwrecks and things, there's mention of nautical terms, which for most of us, it doesn't even mean a lot. We don't quite understand nautical terms as well as sailors or other people who are dealing with that. Uh, but Luke uses that kind of, those kinds of terms, that kind of writing. He wrote with great skill. He is of the highest literary style. Maybe you've heard the reference before. I heard it the other day, and I'm going to mess it up. But I, I want to say it was like fifth grade, right? It's around middle school-ish, junior high-ish. Fifth grade level is what most of the Bible is written on, uh, written for us to understand. But Luke is writing not to be, as we say, holier than thou or anything. We're smarter than everyone else. But his literary style is of the highest order. In fact, Luke uses... 55 words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. 55 words that are found only in Luke. Uh, And so his vocabulary is larger than any other New Testament writer. And if you include Acts or you go over to Acts, there are 135, 135 words that are unique to Luke and to the book of Acts. And so that's important when we think about his uh, style and the way that he is writing. The next note here on the screen is that he is not an apostle, he is not an eyewitness, but he is a researcher. If uh, you're still open to Luke chapter 1, we've not gone very far besides those other passages. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Of course, you see down in verse 3 that the name Theophilus is mentioned, and that's what also connects us to the book of Acts. Right In Acts chapter 1, the mention is made, uh, the former account I made, O Theophilus. That's Acts chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly, carrying with it this literary style, an orderly account most excellent, Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The uh, American Standard Version, the ASV, uh, kind of words this a little differently. It says, it seemed, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, and I like this phrase, having traced the course of all things accurately from the first. So a researcher, almost digging in, we think about uh, newspapers or writers today, and they're, they're you know, going through all these things, and even that, that scene in movies where they've got the wall, right, with all the post-it notes, and they're, they're drawing the lines and connecting all the dots. He says that it seemed good to me, having traced the course of all things accurately. One other interesting uninspired note, right, I want to say that carefully, one other uninspired tradition says that Luke's account of the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist is from Mary. And we talked about Mary this morning, that he maybe interviewed Mary, and that's where he was able to get some of these accounts and line them in order. Again, uninspired tradition doesn't say it absolutely true in Scripture, but an interesting way to think about a researcher, a physician, going through and trying to line these things up. And, of course, we also want to add here one more time. We had it on the first slide. But he is guided by the Holy Spirit, of course. We're not trying to suggest that there's anything here in any way in which he's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it is interesting to think about their background sometimes. All right, let's talk about the audience or the recipients for just a moment. Uh, it is for all. We say this each time. But the gospel is for all. This is for anyone who could read it. But it's primarily to a non Jewish audience. If you remember, about two or three weeks ago, we talked about Mark, and Mark appealed to the Romans, we said. Luke appeals to the Greeks. Luke does little, if any, little emphasis on prophecy. Now, think back, it's been a few months ago now, but when Matthew wrote, we emphasized that I think it was in the hundreds. I wish I'd grabbed that number. I think it was in the hundreds, the times that Matthew goes back to the Old Testament. And why is that? Because he wants the Jews to understand the fulfillment. But if you're talking to somebody about things that they are not familiar with at all, why would you talk about those Old Testament things? Greeks and Romans are going to say, I don't care. I don't even know what you're talking about. And so both Mark and Luke make little reference to the Old Testament. And we said this last month with Mark, but Luke also says some things that Jews would have known. He mentions that Capernaum is a city of Galilee. Again, the Jews are going to say, I know that. Maybe I've been there, visited. Uh, he makes mention that Emmaus, you remember at the end of Luke, there are two men on the road to Emmaus when Jesus appears to them after he's risen from the dead. He makes mention that it's a seven-mile journey from Emmaus to Jerusalem. Again, Jews would have said, I know that, probably made that trip before. But he's explaining that for these Greeks to kind of get a picture in their mind of the way that these things went in order. 
This might be a small glimpse into the way that my marriage works sometimes when I give my wife 45 details that she doesn't care anything about, you know. I say, well, it was seven miles until I got to that. She's like, I don't really care. You just went there. That's all I need to know, you know. Luke is saying it's exactly these kind of details that help me set it in order and helps them to understand. Now, thinking about this difference between the Romans and the Greeks, and this is going to lead us into our purpose, the Romans were interested in action. Do you remember that we said Marcus, Marcus, so short, but it's so jam-packed. It begins with suddenly. Remember, we said that last month, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. He talks about Jesus being the perfect example of humanity. When you think of Greeks, what do you think of sometimes? Maybe philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle. What did they do? Well, they philosophize about man. What is man? What is man made up of? That's what they would think about. So Luke is going to emphasize and present as the purpose here that Jesus was the perfect man. He was the perfect human. And so because of that, Luke is going to emphasize Jesus' humanity more than any other gospel account. I'll let you finish writing that down or filling in your outline, but I've got some examples that I want to share with you here. He emphasizes Jesus' humanity more than any other gospel account. These are not in your outline, I don't believe, but just to, to put it on the screen for you. Luke uses the phrase son of man 24 times. He uses that idea of being the son of man. He also traces Jesus' lineage. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You open up Matthew, and what does Matthew begin with? Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, right? He traces that. But if you look in Matthew chapter 1, what Matthew begins with or does, let me get over there myself, Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, but what does he say? The son of Abraham. That's what Matthew says. Who's he writing to? The Jews. What do the Jews care about? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew traces Jesus's, excuse me, Jesus's genealogy back to Abraham. Now go to Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse number 23, Luke is going to trace the genealogy of Jesus. Luke chapter 3, look at verse 23. Now he's the son of Joseph, the son of Heliel, the son of, and goes down through there. But look at verse 38. Who does Luke trace the genealogy back to? The first man. Luke traces it all the way back to Adam. What's going to matter to these philosophizers, to these Greeks, and they care about mankind? He's going to go far enough back and trace not the kingly lineage, right? Matthew says to the Jews, son of David, son of Abraham. Luke is going to say that's all the way back to Adam. He, Luke gives us the most complete record of the birth and the early life of Jesus. You know, I kind of made the statement this morning towards the end that, that we should focus more, of course, on the adult life of Jesus because that's where we, we know the most about. But where do we learn about the birth of Jesus and young Jesus? It's Luke 1 and Luke 2, right? Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. Luke 2.41, beginning there, is where we see about him being left behind in the temple uh, as he was and his family is returning and they do not have him. At that time when he's about 12 years old, that's about it. Uh, but Luke does give, us, does give us the most that we know about that. And then number three here, and there's a couple of more that we'll get to um, well, on the next slide maybe, the human traits. 
Sorry, I got my slides out of order here. Uh, many human traits were emphasized. Do you remember in Matthew, excuse me, Luke chapter 19, Luke 19 and verse 41, Jesus is found to be doing what over Jerusalem? Well, he's weeping. He's crying. He's a human. He has these emotions. You go over to Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, and that's the famous phrase, of course, where we see that he is praying in the garden and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Luke, the beloved physician, is recording for us these human traits of Jesus. One more thing that, uh, that I did not include here that, that uh, he gives for us is an emphasis on Jesus' prayer life. There are 15 prayers of Jesus recorded in Luke, and 11 of them. 11 out of 15 are unique to Luke. Did you realize Jesus prayed so much? If I ask you that, I think you'd say yes. But did you realize there were that many that were recorded? He's human. He's praying. He's weeping. He's, you know, crying and he has these tears like, uh, or sweat like great drops of blood. All of that to emphasize the humanity. All right, let's talk about a few of these peculiar things that are, are, important to Luke or different about Luke if you will number one he's the only Gentile New Testament writer that's important when we think about the audience and we think about the author uh, Luke is the only one who was a Gentile the rest of them were Jews uh, number two as we said a moment ago he gives the fullest account of Jesus birth and his childhood records that for us uh, so that we can read that. Do we wish we had more? Uh, yeah, maybe sometimes. You know, it'd be interesting to have a little peek behind the curtain, as we say, of what was taking place uh, in the life of Jesus. You know, we, we joke sometimes about, we talked this morning about uh, Mary, you know, Mary examining, counting his fingers, counting his toes as a baby, you know, thinking about those things as she uh, held her, you know, son. Um, but we also wonder about Jesus as a, a newborn or, right, as a, as a toddler in, in his growth. You know, what was that like? Don't know great details, but Luke does give us the fullest account of those things. There are a couple of things that he emphasizes as, as well that are, in, that are peculiar to Luke. Number one, he gives special attention to women. He talks about Mary. He talks about Elizabeth. This is just all the first few chapters, by the way. <laughs> Uh, Luke chapter 1, he talks about Mary and Mary and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 2, he talks about Anna, the young, or not the young lady, the older lady, excuse me, uh, who is, is wanting to wait for him as, as he is coming. And Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, she was an older woman who had been looking for him, been waiting for the birth of the Messiah. Also, the widow of Nain uh, takes place, I think, in Luke chapter 4. Uh, pretty early on here in which uh, he has this interaction that Jesus does with this widow. Um, all these things happen very quickly in which he has these uh, interactions with these women. The sinful woman um, who's going to you know, wash his feet with her tears uh, in Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 39 who comes to him and does this. Uh, all these accounts link to women in which um, often we make a, a point that women were treated differently, right? They, they were treated differently during that time. But Luke makes special attention to the role of women in the ministry of Jesus. And then as we said just a moment ago, um, he gives special attention to his prayer life. In every, almost every major event 
that was recorded, Jesus was praying. If if you're open to Luke, let's go through a few very quickly. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus' baptism. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. He's fixing to select the twelve. Not much of a bigger choice than that when it comes to this ministry, right? The 12 who are going to be with him, be the closest to him. It came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Matthew chapter 9 in verse number 29. This is the transfiguration. We talked about this a couple of months ago now. But as he prayed. This great moment in history and time when Jesus is transfigured on the mount and God says, hear my son, listen to him, he is praying. We've already mentioned Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, as he's praying in the garden. And even Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23 and verse number 40. Well, I guess uh, 40 down to verse 42, as he is hanging from the cross, he is praying, he is praying these words, and he's saying these things to the Father. Through this time, he has moments, I guess you could say, of, of prayer. And so in every moment, he is praying, and Luke wants to give special attention to that. One key passage, and you can quote it if I got you started with it, but Luke 19.10 is probably the key passage of the book of Luke. Today salvation has come to this house. This is at the end of the interaction with Zacchaeus. Because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Can I encourage you this afternoon as we conclude this study? To realize that Jesus' mission was to save souls. That was his point. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. If that's Jesus' mission, though, to save souls, we could also say that our mission, then, is to bring souls to the Savior. That should be what we are after. I don't have to tell you because you probably feel it as well, but we are in quite possibly the busiest part of the year, right? I know when school is starting or school is ending or summer camps are going on or all these different things are happening, there's different periods for each one of us in which we feel the busiest. But for most of us, it's quite often, this is the time, whether it's traveling to be with family, it's having to buy the gifts and the things to be with family, all of that's going on. All these events are taking place with our work family and our family at home and extended family and all those things. We, we get caught up in a lot of that. But we always need to remember that our mission here should be the same of that of Jesus. His mission was to save souls. We cannot save souls in the way that he did, but we can bring souls to the Savior. Um, I know that during this time of the year when there's a lot going on, you may say, it's kind of hard. This may not be the best time. I understand. But in everything that we do, if we keep that a thought, if we keep that as part of our life, then in all these different interactions, we may have a moment to suggest to someone, about doing what's right, about becoming a Christian, or even returning to faithful service if they are a Christian but have wandered away. It's with that in mind as well that we conclude this lesson on the gospel according to Luke. We're about to sing the song in just a moment, Jesus 
paid it all. You know, Luke records for us his suffering and what he went through on the cross. He truly did pay it all for you and for me and for the sins of the world. As we think about that, it's meant to encourage us, encourage us to do what is right, to be faithful to God, to submit ourselves to him. And so it's with that in mind that we will select a song and sing that song in just a moment, such as this, to encourage ourselves. I know we've had a full day already of thoughts and of worship and of time, but, but maybe something has changed. Maybe there's been something that's bothering you, and so it's worth our time to, to sing a song, to encourage ourselves to think about doing what's right. Maybe you're here and you need to become a child of God. Submit yourself in obedience to him, having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ so that the Lord can add you to his church. Maybe you've done that, but you've struggled with things in this life. You realize that things are amiss, and you don't want to continue in that. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Both those who are lost and never known him, and even those of us who, who do wander away, who do allow sin to separate us from God, we can come back, and we're thankful for that chance, even now as we stand together and as we sing.